Well, over the past few weeks, we have been going through this Advent season together, and as we have been waiting for that symbolic arrival of Jesus Christ on Christmas morning, we've been using that time to examine places where we have been craving elements of God's kingdom. Because deep in our hearts, we recognize that the world is not the way it ought to be. And there's a longing for something more, something better than our everyday experience. We started by seeing how our lives, we don't want it to be marked by despair, but for God's hope to permeate us. And we looked at the conflict that abounds in the world we live in, and we wanted God's peace, his shalom, to fill the earth. Michael shared about what it means to pursue our joy in the Lord even when our circumstances might not be particularly happy at the moment. And then last week, we examined this deep need that exists within each of us to be loved. We want to know and to be known by others, to validate our sense of worth and sense of identity. So we've been symbolically in that time waiting for the birth of Jesus Christ. And last week, last Monday, we finally welcomed his arrival. And I hope that all of us were able to celebrate in some manner with festivities, whether it be with families or friends. Maybe it was just a pause in the busyness of life that allowed you to, reset, to rest. Right? The birth of Jesus Christ was a respite in that constant slug of human brokenness, of abuses, of power. But Christmas comes and goes. It oftentimes feels short-lived, can't believe my kids are going back to school in two days. And, and once the holiday passes, we're <clears throat> yet again we have to face a world that's filled with brokenness, filled with suffering and oppression. I mean, even in the original event, the angels and sh- shepherds celebrated with joy at the arrival of the promised Messiah. Finally, the king has come as we sing in carols like, O Holy Night, a, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. I'm sure the sentiment was, finally, what we have been waiting for has arrived. Now things are going to be different. But within a short period of time, ugly rears its, or evil rears its ugly face again in the community around Jesus. What we find is that our waiting is not complete. And as I've said this numerous times through the Advent season, that Advent also means we look ahead with anticipation for the return of Jesus to definitively set things right. And so if you want to follow along with the story, um, if you want to pull out your Bibles, we're going to go through Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 13 and, and following. And you probably know, you know, you, you've heard the stories, you've seen the nativity scenes of what happens right before the passage. It's, it's the visit of the wise men. Pagan scholars, non, no, well, non-Christians, but non-Jewish individuals, from the east, they see this new star that's announcing the birth of the king of the Jews, and they follow it to Bethlehem. First, they make a pit stop in Jerusalem, and their goal is to pay homage to this new king with their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, we don't, we don't know how long that journey took, but it was likely that Jesus was a toddler by the time the wise men were able to find him. I was visiting just a couple days ago my, my brother-in-law in Virginia, and he commented, you know, we were talking about this, and he's like, you know, the reality is all of our nativity displays are inaccurate. Right? There, there was, the wise men were not there. First of all, they were not there at the manger. Jesus was probably in more 
permanent housing in Bethlehem for a, a year or two. Uh, but they definitely were not there at the same, as the same time as the shepherds. So I don't, I'm not exactly sure what to do about that, but you get the idea. <clears throat> but the wise men, they, they make this journey from the east, from you know, probably modern-day Iraq. And they, their first stop is in Jerusalem because it's the capital of Israel. They approach King Herod, who King Herod was a puppet king for the Roman Empire because they went to the seat of power in Israel. Herod consults the religious leaders to figure out where the Messiah was supposed to be born, and he's able to redirect the Magi to Bethlehem. And then just before our passage, what he says to the wise men is he says, once you find the Messiah, once you find this king, come back. Let me know where he is so that I might also go and worship him. But God warns the Magi in a dream to skip town on Herod to go home a different way, not back to him. So that brings us to our passage. Follow along as I read. I'm going to read Matthew 2, verses 13 to 18. Now when they, the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is a brutal passage. It was evident that Herod had no plans to worship this new king, said that this announcement left him disturbed. He was threatened that this new Hebrew boy would usurp his authority as king of the region. Herod's plan was to strike early and quickly and snuff out this would-be king before he had a chance to develop into a threat. The text tells us what happened next that Herod had the male children, two years and under in the town of Bethlehem, killed. I I cannot even begin to fathom or imagine the helplessness that many of those families would have endured. As Roman soldiers went about the neighborhood, knocking on doors, dragging out families, and brutally, brutally murdering the children. Now, this is an important tension in the story because Jesus has just been born. And this grim event shows us that even after the long-awaited Messiah, we see that wickedness and evil have power, and they continue to be the ones to call the shots. Now, there are those, uh, some scholars, who debate the historicity of the event. The line of reasoning goes something like this. If something this heinous had actually happened, it would have been documented somewhere. It's an argument from silence, I guess they make. 
They say, since there's not any historical attestation to this event outside of the Gospel of Matthew, some critical scholars think that Matthew fabricated this event, but we all know, what do we say, that history is written by the victor. How much more so in a time where the powerful controlled the narrative and the weak were expected to fall in line. Most would estimate that this was not thousands of children, but probably a few dozen, given the the size of the town of Bethlehem. Still depravity at its worst, but it it expresses, it shows how uh, it was able to fly under the radar, probably be overlooked in other elements of history. But I think Matthew includes this text for a few reasons for us. He's the only gospel writer that includes this story. First, Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. So his gospel is often trying to build bridges, make connections between the life and teachings of Jesus with the foundation of the Old Testament. Now, if you think about the Old Testament, you you might remember that there is another story where a baby boy avoided a massacre that had been ordered by a cruel dictator. Moses, one who turned out to be one of the, if not one of, if not the most significant leader in Israel's Old Testament history. I think Matthew is trying to connect Jesus as a new Moses. Both were able to uh, avoid the evil perpetrated against their people. Both spent some time in a period of exile. Matthew is demonstrating how Jesus fits the prophetic mold of the Old Testament. And this explains probably why the other gospel writers neglect the story, because their goal is not to connect Jesus to the figure of Moses, quite so strikingly as Matthew does. But this is an important lesson because it tells us, again, maybe we didn't need to be educated in it, but it communicates something about power. It gives us another lesson of the corrupting influence of power. It was Lord Acton who said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The wise men come to Herod proclaiming that the stars, the heavens, have communicated to them that a new king has been born to the Jews. They ask, where is he so that we might go and worship him? Clearly, they're not referring to Herod, but someone else. The scripture says that Herod and all of Jerusalem were troubled. They were disturbed at the news These are the people who were close to his rule, who were used to his rule, people in positions of power and authority that benefited from his reign. But now pagan astronomers come with a message that someone else has been born who's destined to rule. Talk about a threat to job security. Herod and his court are probably disturbed because this could mean an end to their power and influence, to the privilege that they had been carrying. How many kings and rulers in history have seen, have we seen, that have been gracious in the passing on of authority? I mean, just in the Old Testament, we see clear examples that when a new ruler had been chosen, there was political unrest. Israel's first king was replaced by David. But Saul didn't go willingly or quietly into the night. He fought David, tried to kill him, all to preserve what he thought was his. 
This wasn't anything new. To more than half of the monarch successions in the Old Testament either involve a conspiracy to kill the, the current king or else, you know, once the, ki- the, the, king, the previous king died, removing all vestiges of anyone who might make a claim for the throne. Killing off all, all descendants, anyone who might argue they had a blood right to it. It was a constant bloodbath. But this isn't just an ancient phenomenon, you know what word I'm trying to say there, when it comes to politics. One could look at the unrest over the last several years in places like Egypt or Syria, Ethiopia, Libya. These nations, the people have been demanding renewed leadership, but the current regimes have not been one to give up their positions of power and authority willingly. As a result, there's riots, there's violence, When the civilians begin to rumble, wanting a change in power, the military, acting under the authority of the ruler, is quick to try to quell that call to change. We saw this here in our own country following the last election. President Trump was not willing to go quietly into the night and defer to President-elect Biden. And once someone has a hold of power, it's a difficult thing to let go of. Herod's reaction was not that much different, and I can only speculate that he felt threatened by this announcement of a new king. Herod's response is to feign enthusiasm to Jesus, to play the political game, strategically try to gather as much information as he could about his rival. But when the doors are closed, his true motives are seen. He's not happy about the arrival of this new king. In fact, quite the opposite. He wants to squash the insurrection this child will bring before it starts. There's something conniving, something manipulative to the response that Herod brings in this passage, right? The wise men are excited. They want to worship. They want to welcome this new king. While Herod's motives are the opposite, those motives lie just below the surface. Right? Instead of outright hostility and rejection, He acts as if he too is interested in worshiping the king. Perhaps we're to think that he's pretending that he would be willing to peacefully hand over his power when the child becomes of age. Herod's voice makes the child sound like he is an ally, but his actions communicate an entirely different story. Now it's easy to pick on Herod or Donald Trump, but the truth is, I would argue that we often carry ourselves with that same posture that they did. While we might not be political rulers, I believe that our reactions and reception of Christ, even for those of us who are believers, is not that different from the way that Herod received Jesus. Because the arrival of Jesus means that our way of living might change. That's something many of us feel unprepared for. In a way, each of us believes that we have some degree of rule and power. We often believe that we are the final decision maker of what ought to happen in our lives. I don't know about you, you know, my my kingdom does not encompass much land or wealth, but living in an individualistic society, we believe that our lives are, are our own, that nobody can tell us what to do or how we should live. When Jesus Christ breaks into our dominions, he challenges our status quo. 
He challenges us to give up that lordship, give up that authority to him. Just like Herod and these other political figures of our generation, these requests are often not well received. Right? Instead of graciously handing over the reins, we fight and we claw and we do what we can to remain in control. For Herod, that meant taking matters into his own hands, trying to kill the child of promise. For us, it might mean other more subtle hostilities. What do we do when God calls us to give more than we think that we're able to? We fight and claw, rationalize why this is one area that we know better than Christ. What about when God calls us to love someone who really gets on our nerves and seems unlovable? We calmly explain to Jesus just that, right? They are unlovable. I've given it my fair try. The problem is with them. They're too stubborn. I think we can all point to places in our lives where we try to tell Jesus, no, I actually know best in this situation. Thanks for redeeming me and all of that, but let me do my thing and I'll let you do yours. Right? We may not be openly hostile to Jesus, but then again, Herod wasn't either. Herod's first response was to feign enthusiasm towards Jesus. Do we find ourselves acting excited, giving lip service while our hearts remain far away? Has the absolute power that we believe we yield over our own lives corrupted us as well? I think the consequence of this thirst we have for control is that suffering follows in its wake. In the story we're looking at this morning, because of Herod's insecurity and desire to stamp out Jesus, many innocent children suffered. I mean, doesn't this create quite the tension for us? That promised one has finally come. The one we've been waiting for has arrived, yet violence continues to echo in our communities. The cry for justice continues. Jesus is born, but dictators, vicious dictators like Herod, continue their vile work, harming those who are innocent in the process. Our waiting hasn't finished. Hope has come with Jesus, but hope has not been fully realized until he comes again. And that's where we find ourselves. We live in what some people call the time between the times, time when Christ has established his kingdom, and we see glimpses of that in the world. We see opportunities where God breaks through, and we, we, we see the goodness and the mercy and the grace of his kingdom exist, but sometimes they feel like they're fleeting, those moments, as evil and wickedness continues to thrive. And so we wait, and we pray. We pray that the kingdom of God would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for the time when his kingdom comes in its totality and true justice is brought forth. But we're not there yet. And in the meantime, we wait and pray and lament, holding that tension, the tension of the joy of Christ's arrival with the despondency we feel of that injustice around us.
Some of you might have seen this on Facebook um, the other day. A friend of mine shared this, and this is uh, um, Munther Isaac. He's a Christian Bible teacher uh, and leader in Bethlehem, but not Bethlehem, PA, but Bethlehem, Israel. And I have family in Bethlehem, PA, so when someone says Bethlehem, that's where I think first. And this is what he said. He said, December 28th this year is the Feast of the Holy Innocents, which honors the memory of the children of Bethlehem who were slaughtered by Herod following the birth of Christ. The story that we're looking at this morning, the Feast of the Innocent. He continues, this year, Palestinian Christians in Bethlehem gathered for an ecumenical service at St. Francis Chapel in the Nativity Church. That included olive wood hearts. That's what all those wooden things on the ground are. Olive wood hearts for each of the more than 8,000, now almost 9,000 children killed in Gaza by Israeli military forces over the past 84 days. We prayed. We lamented. We pleaded. We committed ourselves to peace. Lord, have mercy. I mean, what else can we say in situations like this? But Lord, have mercy. We're going to close with a song. It's a Christmas carol called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It's not one of the more popular ones. Um, But the song is based on an 1863 poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And the poem is focused on the disconnect that that Longfellow experienced. First, hearing the bells on Christmas Day, right? Singing their joyous song, welcoming the birth of Christ. But then hearing those bells, he says, were drowned out. It's, it, it's a longer poem. We're not going to sing that verse but, or listen to that verse. But, but he, he writes about how those bells were drowned out by the sound of cannon fire in our nation's civil war that involves so much suffering, including his, his son had a near fate. Some reports say that he, he lost a son to the Civil War. I think that his son was, was wounded pretty substantially, but he did not die as a result of that. But you're going to hear a, vo- a verse where Longfellow acknowledges his despair, that even though these carols, these, these bells sing of peace on earth, he doesn't feel it. Because as he says, quote, hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. It's in these moments that our faith must weather the storms of that discord that we feel. And Longfellow Longfellow states this eloquently, and he says this, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. We're reminded that God is not sleeping in these incidents of injustice. He's not deaf to the cries of the mothers who weep and lament. That hope is coming. Verse 18 in that passage that we looked at, Matthew 2.18, is quoted from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. And the quote comes from chapter 31, and this deals with the, the exile, the Babylonians coming in and carting um, the young people off to, to uh, exile in Babylon. 
But following that verse that is quoted, Jeremiah 31, verses 16 to 17 say this next. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there's a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Now, Matthew's audience is going to be familiar with this. So, and so as Matthew leaves that quote of Jeremiah about Rachel weeping, the people know what comes next, that it's a message of hope, that even though there are tears, that work of grieving is not going to return to them void. Even though oppressors seem to rule the land and devastation follows them, it isn't the end of the story. Matthew quoting Jeremiah 31 is giving a promise that those children who were slaughtered by Herod will once again return to their land. This is why the Christmas story gives us hope. Because the birth of Jesus Christ inaugurated a time when death itself began to work and be turned backwards. Whether the boys that lost their life to Herod's vicious evil, or the thousands of Palestinian children who have died amidst this Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's a reminder that death is not the end. There is hope that comes with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. While their despair might try to win the day because of this evil and strife we see in the world, we need to be reminded that God is not dead, that God doesn't sleep, that justice is coming. Resting in promises like 2 Peter 3.9 remind us that God's timing is not the same as our timing. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus is coming back. He's not slow to fulfill his promises. I feel like he's slow to fulfill his promises. You probably feel like he's slow to fulfill his promises, but what Peter reminds us of is God's timing is, that's where he says that a a day is a thousand years and a thousand years a day in God's kind of timeline. He's outside of time, the nth degree, as we've talked about in small group. So we feel that, but we need to be reminded to the truth that God knows what he's doing and hold out hope that these, these, these images and experiences, events of trauma that we have seen are not the end of the story. But in the meantime, we tarry, we pray, we lament, waiting for God's justice to be done. To be done. And, and in fairness, celebrate it in the times that we do because there are ways that God does break through, give us glimpses of that kingdom that is to come. And I know this isn't like a feel-good end. It's, it's not an easy place to land. But I, I want us to sit in this this week as we kind of wrap up this season of Advent that we're, we've, we've received Jesus, but we're still waiting and it's okay that we're still waiting. So I have some questions for us to reflect on this week. 
So the first is this. And this is one kind of like a theodicy, God on the problem of evil type philosophical question. But why do you think God does not more directly intervene to prevent massacres like we read about in Matthew 2? I'm sure we've all experienced trauma of some level, maybe not quite to that level, that we say, God, where were you? Why didn't you act? That's a tension that we need to hold to, that we need to think through, to so try to give voice to. Second is this, where is your soul crying out for God's justice in the season of waiting? Sometimes it's important to name those things. And lastly is this, and this is trying to kind of personalize it a little bit, um, you know, it's easy to, to, to think about Herod and, you know, dictators and totalitarian states, but, you know, even in our own hearts, what ways has Jesus called you to relinquish your power for his kingdom? What has God asked you to sacrifice, to put aside, to be second place, whatever it might be, and how have you responded in that? Has it been willingly turning over that authority, that leadership of life, or is it Fisting. I mean, when we were, you know, singing, sorry, this is me going off notes a little bit, but when we were singing that, um, that uh, Come Now Fount, um, it was a beautiful rendition, and it got to the above all. Um, I don't even remember what the bridge was, the lyrics of it, but it was moving me to tears because it, it was, you know, my, might I, you know, paraphrase whatever it was, like, might I focus on you, you know, your name above everything else, and I, I have this moment where I'm like, that's not how I'm living my life. It's an important reminder and conviction of, anyway, that there are plenty of places where God says, Chris, go this way. And I say, ah, I don't really want to. Um, And I need to be reminded that his way is the right way. Anyway, let me pray and then we'll we'll play that song. I know I referenced it like five minutes ago. Uh, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, but that's to kind of give voice to some of that tension that we experience. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the ways in which you have um, acted and moved um, in our lives, and uh, that there are ways, there are places where we can look back through history and see uh, that, that those down payments, those examples, uh, those glimpses of your kingdom that, that help to see us through in faith in the present. Or that we would know with beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are not alone and that while we are weeping and mourning and lamenting for Uh, injustice in the world, injustice perhaps in our lives. Lord, that this is not the end of the story. Give us that full picture, um, not just of the fall and redemption, but of creation, fall, redemption, and your restoration that is coming. With that fullness of the gospel and your narrative, your story, may we continue to hold out our faith in you, especially in times of difficulty like we looked at this morning. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.